on, everybody? You're listening to The Same Show, the show about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Cliff. And today, I have a really special guest joining us. He's an entertainment attorney, professor, mediator, and musician. He has worked with the likes of Led Zeppelin, Gloria Estefan, Miles Davis, Timbaland, Sony Music, members of the Bob Marley family, Gianni Versace, and countless others. This guy has quite the resume. <laughs> Dr. Ira Abram. How are you doing this afternoon, Ira? It's wonderful to be with you, Cliff. Doing good, <laughs> sunny, and beautiful day. Good, good, good. Glad to hear that. I'm super excited uh, to have you on the show. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on as well. And I'm really excited to have this conversation that we're going to have today. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Before I introduce the topics, I want to take and shout out all the listeners in all 60 plus countries. Thank you guys. I love you guys. Thank you for continuing to like, share, and subscribe and continuing to spread the word about the same show. I greatly appreciate it and all you guys are doing for the platform. And if you are listening and you don't follow us on social media, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at same underscore show. Again, that's same S A. N-E underscore show. Again, that's on Instagram and Twitter. And then you can find us on Facebook, The Sang Show. Again, on Facebook, The Sang Show. So today, we're going to be talking about the rise of independent music artists. We're also going to talk about entertainment education. And then following that, we're going to ask you some questions, Ira, so that the listeners can learn more about you, your background, the things you do, and all the fun things that go along with that. So let's go ahead and hop right into it with the first topic, the rise of independent music artists. So having uh, you know done the work that you've done, you know a great deal about this movement that's happening. And obviously there's a, there's a lot of artists that are taking the independent route and artists are also trying to distance themselves from the label and limit the amount of business that they're doing with the record labels now. I want to, you know, from your perspective, with your legal background and the people that you've worked with, wanting to get your perspective on this movement and what's going on, why is it happening and all the things, you know, related to the artists, you know, taking the independent route now. Sure. Well, digitization made all the difference in the world. It resulted in uh, the removal of the gatekeepers, the people who were barriers between independent artists and their audience. So they, they call this process disintermediation. It started really in earnest in 1999, year 2000, with Napster and little uh, guy Sean sitting in his college uh, room came up with an idea for Napster, and it really resulted in a cascade of effects that were scary as all get out to record labels who control the market. During those years, actually uh, just before, let's say from 1988 to 1999, there were six major record labels that had uh, at least uh, 80, 85% of the market. And they were known as the big six. We're talking about Warner Music Group, EMI, Sony Music, which was then CBS Records until January 91, BMG, which had been known as RCA, Universal Music Group, which was called MCA Music previously, and then Polygram, 
then there's a series of mergers. Polygram merged into Universal Music Group, and then that narrowed it down to five majors. 2004, Sony and BMG did a joint venture deal. They created the Sony BMG label, and that kind of uh, uh, narrowed it down to four. In 2007, the big four controlled about 70% of the world music market and about 80% of the U.S. market. And then there were further consolidations. I'm not going to go into all of them, but let's just say that digitization gave indie artists a way to reach their audience without having to go through these uh, labels. And frankly, the labels contracts were just god-awful for the artist. Nine out of ten of the artists who signed to these labels did not break even. So the label's justification was, look, we're putting the money out for advances and so forth. Therefore, we ought to be rewarded by having the lion's share of royalties. And don't forget, in those pre-digital days, it was all about sale of physical product. Later, it became physical product and downloads. But when digitization took over, ultimately leading to streaming. I mean, let's face it, physical product is now uh, the walking dead. It's just about... Um, <laughs> so, you know, that's really... Uh, that, that gave rise to the growth of the indie artist and the way the indie artist could now reach the, their public. But don't forget, forgive me for rambling on, but don't forget that uh, Spotify is partially owned by uh, one of the majors. They still have their hooks into uh, the streaming side of things, but in a little different way than you, you might imagine. Yeah. And first, talk about Spotify. One, I'm not surprised because I'm, I've been waiting to see what's going to happen with Spotify because I, I don't see them really being all that strong as a standalone entity, to be quite honest, <laughs> as compared to an Apple that is backed by, or Apple Music, better yet, that is backed by, obviously, Apple, the company. But when we talk about digital, yes, you know, like the conversation you and I were having, you know, like it eliminated all of those barriers because I know one of the things you made me think about too is how that with the labels, they had such a tight grip on the industry, not only because of deals that they had structured with artists, but they had the access to the radio stations. And I know you were talking about that they had to, artists had to go through the labels to in order to get on the radio, traditional radio. And now with the digitalization, it, those barriers are broken and where it has enabled artists to be able to go put their music on Spotify, on Apple, Pandora and not have to worry about being signed, right? Produce it and put it out there. And even other platforms like SoundCloud and Reverb Nation that allow artists to put up their own music and get discovered. Again, the, the digitalization be, giving way to uh, independent artists to be independent, really. Like make independent something, being independent worthwhile, basically. Well, it um, is worthwhile, but streaming royalties have really been abysmally low. And since all of the action is moving to streaming, Spotify, when you can, as you were comparing Spotify and Apple Music, Spotify, from what I've heard, at least created a slush fund to 
fund uh, the defense of lawsuits brought by people like Wixon Publishing and others uh, who were basically complaining about Spotify's not paying uh, even the royalties that the law mandated. So not so with Apple Music. Apple Music tried to track down the the people who were legitimately entitled to streaming royalties, and they paid, uh, even though they paid at a low, uh, still a low rate, they at least made an effort to pay. Whereas Spotify filed all of these notices of intent, NOIs, claiming they couldn't find artists who were really out there, like Eminem, Bruno Mars, people who, you know, I mean, You'd have to be living under a rock not to know uh, where to find these people in order to pay them. But um, right. uh, Spotify took the view that they'd rather be sued than have to just pony up and make the payment. That All of that has led to new legislation, which is going to kick in January 1st, the Music Modernization Act. Hopefully that'll help artists, particularly indie artists, get paid if they do the appropriate thing by registering their compositions and their recorded compositions with the Music Licensing Collective. It's a, it's a very complicated law, 66-page law, but I have to say it promises to be one of the best things that has happened to the music industry in many, many decades. Well, that's always good. <laughs> Anything that I, I'm assuming it helps the artists, is that correct? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm a big advocate of artists. I always have. My background is as a musician, so uh, I right. identify with them, although I've represented people on the corporate side of things from time to time. But for the most part, for the creator, the creative person, that's that's where I come from. All right, we're back. Now we're going to talk about entertainment education. Obviously, Ira, with you being a professor, I couldn't think of a better person to talk to about this, you being in the university setting. And you know, this is something I talk about with people in the industry and on my team all the time, especially talking about you know, people wanting to get into entertainment and, you know, obviously knowing people as well who have degrees in entertainment. Uh, and, you know, there are various degree programs and all kinds of degrees that teach you uh, different things about the business. But, you know, the, the question for me has always been, okay, to what benefit is that? Obviously, it has a purpose. There's a purpose for it and there is a benefit. But to what extent? Because one thing you know, I know about this industry and you, you know this as well. A lot of it is through experience that you learn compared to other industries where, you know, like being a doctor or being an accountant or something like there is like this uh, set formula. You know, you go to school, you do this, you get this certification and you do that. And, and then you work your way up where in the entertainment business is not that at all. It's so it's very ambiguous. <laughs> So when it comes to, to uh, entertainment education, what are, what are your thoughts around that? Well, it depends on what area of the music industry one wants to really develop uh, some a knowledge base about. If you're talking about uh, recording, pure uh, sound engineering, 
That's something that can certainly be taught very effectively at uh, schools uh, like the two I teach at. Uh, I, I'm teaching at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina during the fall semester. And then I uh, wing south, you know, to get out of the cold here in North Carolina and teach at Florida Atlantic University, which has a very well-developed music program as well. And I teach there in the spring. Uh, My two courses are based on law-oriented subjects, such as copyright, recording industry, music publishing, video game music, you know, the intersection of um, artificial intelligence, virtual reality type uh, subjects, and the music industry. It's really all about how to apply those principles to convert copyright into dollars, for example, and contract issues that help students know where the red flags are. And artist management courses that I teach, likewise, deal with live performances and social media platforms to market DIY musicians uh, and vocalists. But uh, the real education, Cliff, is what happens after you graduate from school and you're in the real world. That's where the education is honed to your own particular job experience. And if you're the person in the room where the deals are being made, you learn more than any uh, formal education can actually teach. But at least you know what the issues are and where the boundaries of normal are on both sides. Right. You don't laugh out of the room if you're negotiating a deal. You have to know what's normal. Right. That is also true. And then on top of that, you know, like we talked about, like this is a business of connections, this is a people business. And that is very big because one of the things I, I think about, and I've been very fortunate as well, being 27 years old, you know, I've been in this business for nine years now, going on 10. And just think about the people I've been able to connect to that are in high, very high places in this business. And obviously the, the higher up, these people are the more the more they're doing the more the experience they have and obviously the, the wealth of knowledge and you know getting access to certain individuals will put you in a completely different category when it comes to the knowledge base and uh, you know the, the knowledge that you have about the industry and so you know that 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 portion of it because yeah that, I, that's what I think about too when you when you talk about you know being in a room where the deals are made and because if you're in the right room and obviously the right people who know what they're doing, who have that wealth of experience, those moments are priceless because you'll take away so much. <laughs> and so, yeah, when it, when it comes to that part, cause I'm sure like you can definitely speak to that, you know, being, having worked with the people that you've worked with and have done some of the dealings that you've done. Am I correct? There's no question. There's no one who starts at the top. Generally mm-hmm. what, happens in this uh, field, as in many other fields of endeavor, is I can tell you as a lawyer uh, how things worked for me. When I was in law school, I was still playing gigs as a trumpet player, and I'd bring my law books to the gigs and study for the next day's assignments during breaks between sets. So 
my musician friends knew that I was heading towards a law degree. I was introduced to one of the Estefans, Emilio Estefan, Gloria's husband. They were not married at the time, by a uh, piano player who I had worked with on some gigs. And I helped uh, them get out of a very bad deal into what turned out to be a very good deal with CVS. Later became Sony, uh, Epic, and so forth. So that opened a huge number of doors. And other people, once they saw success, started uh, knocking at my door. And that's how a lot of this business works. You are in the right place at the right time. You are hopefully smart enough to see opportunities for your clients and help them explore those opportunities. And things happen. Things happen for the best. An attorney, uh, a friend by the name of Joel Katz out of Atlanta, tells a story about his first representing James Brown. He didn't know a thing about the music business at the time, he says, but James hired him in order to ask for the moon, the sun, and the stars in a contract negotiation. He asked for it. They refused. He said, okay, I'm leaving. I'm leaving with my client, and we're going to sign with another label. They said, wait, don't go. And uh, the bottom line was he got what he wanted, including the uh, private uh, jet and all of the other, at that time, pretty outrageous things that he was asking for. So sometimes not knowing what to ask for turns out to be a good thing. You ask for maybe a little bit more than the usual, and you get it. So I don't know wow. whether I'm afraid from your... <laughs> from your- <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that's, yeah, yeah, that's very, very interesting stuff. <laughs> Never, like, that's a fun fact right there. <laughs> um, and I'm glad you shared that. So. Uh, it's happened to uh, a number of us. I mean, uh, Joel and yours truly, we're not the only ones who stumbled well. Sometimes you stumble into something, and if yeah. you have a brain between your ears, uh, it has a way of working out. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's very true. All right, now for the interview. I'm going to ask you a few questions, Ira, so that the listeners can learn more about you, your background, the things you do, and all the fun things that go along with that. So I'm going to go ahead and fire off with this first question. Of, you know, Momentum is something our guests usually mention. Uh, they finally you know, knock down the first domino, and then it snowballs from there. When did you realize that you were gaining the momentum, and how did you keep it? That's not an easy question to answer. You know, part of it has to do with uh, being in the right place at the right time and a good deal of uh, luck involved in getting that first opportunity. I got it in two ways, one in the music business and another outside of it. Outside of the music business, I grew up in a family that was musical. My dad was a professional musician who was very, very successful during the years when uh, we had a depression in this country in the 1930s, and he supported his whole family of six siblings and his mom. And 
my uh, brother was a, uh, a, a drummer. My mother played piano. My sister played violin. I played trumpet. And uh, we, I grew up in a very bad neighborhood, part of the Bronx in New York, and uh, went to school in Manhattan. My dad uh, was smart enough and wise enough to say, look, you may not go into music as a full-time thing, but use it as a stepping stone to something else. But I want you to have a good music education. So he saw that I went to Manhattan School of Music in uh, Manhattan. I traveled every day to go to school. And music and art high school, when I got to that point, before my family moved to Miami, that gave me the momentum. You talk about momentum. That really gave me the first push towards knowing that I had to work hard to achieve anything in life. How do you continue to maintain that momentum? That's a different thing. One thing's for sure. You cannot be asleep at the switch. You cannot be lazy about your career. It takes a huge amount of time and effort and hard work in order to make things happen. But again, the luck factor, just being in the right place at the right time, that serendipitous uh, factor needs to also flow your way. So as I mentioned earlier, the open door for me was uh, representing one client who I was able to help make it to a, a high level in the industry. And that opened huge numbers of doors. And of course, afterwards, there was constant challenge. One of the other things that I think uh, helped me maintain my momentum was doing things that did not involve money, but rather gave me a sense of real satisfaction. So one of the things that I did was I became, because uh, my wife and I were married very young, we were 19 years old when we were married, and we're still married, incidentally, so that's a good thing. She got me involved in uh, the Florida Bar's family law section to try to help move that process with respect to uh, the welfare of children and so forth. So I was able to uh, become active in the family law section, and ultimately I became chairman of the section of about 2,000 lawyers or so and uh, argued for the formation of a family court, a specialized family court in Florida, and argued in the Florida Supreme Court and prevailed. I know this sounds egotistical. Forgive me. I don't mean to be. Uh, but it's not no. an ego that's involved. It's doing it for the good of it. I, right. It has nothing to do with money at all. It was just doing something for the good of uh, paying it forward. And I think more than anything, that keeps a person's momentum going. Certainly agree with that. Thank you for that, too. You know, a lot of people struggle taking their passion and turning it into their work, you know, oftentimes limiting the focus to a specific range of outcomes. You solved this with practicing and teaching entertainment law. How did you get your passion into a career that was still fulfilling? Well, I, uh, first of all, continued to play trumpet. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was kind of weird. Uh, uh, there were times when I would play gigs that involved uh, judges 
who I had appeared in front of that same day who were in attendance at the gig. And here I was up on the stage as a trumpet player. Uh, they looked at me and didn't recognize me because I was out of uniform. Instead of the three-piece suit, there I was on stage playing trumpet. The um, getting, uh, integrating work and uh, the thing that moves your soul and your heart is always a difficult thing because mm -hmm. to be successful as a lawyer, really, we're talking 60 to 80 hour weeks. It's a very, very difficult and demanding proposition. So my key was simply to maintain my non-lawyer, soul-fulfilling music uh, connections. My connection with playing, my connection with other musicians. I always liked my clients, to be honest. And a lot of those relationships are lifelong friendships. So that helped. That helped an awful lot. But it's a very difficult proposition, Cliff. You know, uh, most people try to separate their private life from their workaday life. Doing what I wound up doing uh, helped bring both of those worlds together. I also uh, have to say that teaching, uh, I, I've been teaching for about uh, 18 years. Uh, this is an, uh, as an adjunct faculty member, which means I do it for the love of it, not the money. <laughs> Either, I'm telling you. But I do love what I do there. I love my students and uh, being able to share real-world experiences with them. And that has also uh, melded passion with the job. I don't know whether that uh, helps uh, answer your question. No, no, that, that definitely did. <laughs> it definitely did. So this next question, you know, what is the biggest knowledge gap you see in your student body when discussing the entertainment business? Well, their lack of real world experience is certainly an obstacle. And uh, a lot of students don't have the, they're, they're, they seem to be um, shy about, um, they don't want to make fools out of themselves. So they try to be guarded in uh, uh, opening up to questions that I may pose in class. Uh, and uh, I'd say also, um, in many fields, internships are not the, uh, you know, a guiding light for a lot of professors. In my field, internships are absolutely essential for students to, to pursue. They've got to get a sense of the real world. And both schools, but particularly here at uh, Appalachian State University, we're hardwired into Nashville. And I can tell you that we have many, many students who have had very fulfilling internships, which led to jobs in Nashville. Uh, likewise, in uh, at Florida Atlantic University, we have great connections with New York and California uh, entertainment industries. So we've helped our students get internships and jobs there. But the knowledge gap is really not what they don't know coming into the the learning experience is simply their lack of real world experience that they have to get through internships. Understood. 
And this last question here, massive media conglomerates have consolidated the entertainment industry to a point where a handful of companies are in the movie and music business, movie and music making business and everything in between. How has consolidation weakened the artist authority in the system and what can up and coming artists do to be better prepared? A lot of people have a knee-jerk reaction to consolidation. They think it's automatically uh, bad. And uh, yes, it is. It, it tends to homogenize the business field of endeavor. It is when you get consolidation, you, you uh, monopolistic practices lead to newcomers being frozen out of the uh, the particular segment of the of the business, and oftentimes. Prices to consumers for those goods and services go sky high, and there's no way to control it. But, you know, consolidation in the music industry, for example, has actually had a beneficial effect to some extent because it has caused DIY, do-it-yourself musicians and creative people to simply go a different way rather than become so linked to getting a music, a major label music deal, or a uh, major publishing deal, they have uh, decided to uh, explore their own careers independently of uh, the big corporate um, conglomerates. And that uh, has actually been a very, very good thing for them. I don't like the idea of monopolistic practices. But I have to say that there are moves right now to break up some of the big um, monopolies that uh, have dominated the media and entertainment industries. Of course, one never knows what's going to happen politically because these are political issues. Jobs are certainly uh, at issue, uh, among other things. My feeling is that uh, although I uh, traditionally have argued against monopolistic practices, particularly in journalism. There are a number of authors who, whose books I can uh, tell you about who um, say that a lot of local news has disappeared from the scene because of, um, of the vertical and horizontal integration of uh, the journalism field. And I'm very empathetic to that. I I think our democracy sometimes is at stake when we when we lose that variety in that field, uh, and it's also true of the in the television, movie industry, other uh, you know affiliated industries. So my feeling is that it's a mixed bag when you're talking about consolidation in the entertainment and media fields. I think Congress is certainly uh, paying careful attention to the big tech companies and the telecom companies right now because, um, well, for lots of reasons, uh, tech companies have gotten uh, so gigantic it's just uh, hard to imagine uh, during the times when we've had economic downturns, some companies have been called too big to fail. I don't like the idea of putting all our eggs in one basket if something happens negatively to a company that's too big to fail, then we're all in trouble. Right. But I would like to see um, Google 
and Facebook and some of the big telecom companies like uh, AT&T broken up. There was a time when ATT was broken up to, into the baby bell companies, and now they're back uh, roaring like crazy with uh, having acquired uh, Direct TV and other uh, companies like that. Comcast uh, is another example. They're gigantic. Disney, so many other examples of companies that have simply dominated their particular industry. So I don't know uh, what the future holds. No one can really predict. (laughs) Facebook is really under the gun right now. They've been under the gun since the Cambridge Analytica scandal a few years back. I guess we'll wait to see what happens there. Amazon likewise, is become the supplier not only of books where it started from, but uh, just about everything else that we need and want, particularly in this pandemic that we're experiencing. They are the go-to for people who don't want to take risks of actually going to stores to shop. That's very true. You bring up a lot of great points. (laughs) A lot of great points. Definitely a pleasure speaking with you as always. Uh, very insightful, very informative. You know, I thank you for uh, again taking time to come on the same show. Definitely enjoyed having you on. My pleasure, Cliff. Anytime. Yeah, man, we'll definitely have to have you back on again in the future. And listeners, thank you guys for continuing to listen and continuing to like, share, and subscribe and spread the word about the same show. Appreciate you guys again. Uh, keep on doing what you do. And you guys are listening to the same show, the show about nothing and everything. And until next time, we're out. 